Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am here with my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and I'm a natural born world shaker is what I am. We're going to get some impressions in this episode, I have a feeling. Yeah, you a good boy, Josh. You a good boy. <laughs> All right. So in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we've been talking about the films of 1967. And in this episode, we're talking about Jason's personal pick, which is what, Jason? Cool Hand Luke. Paul Newman. All right. This is just this is a rollicking start here already. Well, it really matches the tone of a man beaten down by the system who has to work on a chain gang style prison farm, right? Doesn't that fit the tone? Yeah, that's what podcasting is like, really, right? It's true. <laughs> yeah, and there's our uh there's our boss warden over there, yeah. producer Dave. Boss mm-hmm. Dave. Yeah. <laughs> He's a real real slave driver, that Dave. Oh, Sometimes yeah. uh, I ask Dave something and he doesn't understand. And he says, what we have here, <laughs> what we've got here is failure to communicate. Yeah. So it's a really, it's a, it's a shame that... Uh, Richard Dreyfus and Tommy Wiseau aren't also in this movie because we could get <laughs> just a cavalcade of impressions. I mean, I didn't pull a Newman out, so I feel like, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the George Kennedy and the Struther Martin, that's yeah, enough. They're, so. they're in the movie. Those they're, are the famous lines. They know? are. They oh, are indeed. Yeah. Yes. So um, this is a very famous movie for those lines. And it's it's a classic, really. And it was a successful movie at the time that it came out. It was very popular. Uh, was a $16.2 million gross on its budget of $3.2 million and was nominated for four Oscars, including for Paul Newman for Best Actor, for Best Adapted Screenplay, for Best Original Score for uh, Lalo Schifrin, and the winner, Best Supporting Actor, George Kennedy. You want to do his acceptance speech in the voice of his character? <laughs> well, we're doing some world shaking up here, winning Academy Awards. Winner or drag line, me and my boy Luke, we're going to go out and shake our world tree. All right. Just want to get it, get that out of the way, maybe. <laughs> it's not that bad of an impression. No, no, it's not. It's not that. It's not that bad of an impression. Um, it just, I, I feel like the character, it, 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 maybe on purpose, is a bit of an annoying person. And uh, so, you know, it's a little of it goes a long way. He's a charismatic guy and you could see, you know, and he's such a big physical presence that you could see why the other prisoners maybe looked up to him. And then, of course, he looks up to Luke. So it kind of leads into itself. Yes. Yes, he does. Uh, That's that's kind of the evolution of that. He is challenged by Luke, but then is the. I guess, yeah, looks up to him or becomes his friend or his acolyte almost. Yeah, his sidekick. And, you know, who else is challenged by Luke? Authority. Yes. And uh, he fought the law and the law won in this movie. Yeah, you you took it to... uh, uh, well, I like the Clash version of that, but you could you could do the Melon Camp. I fight authority, and authority always wins. Yeah, all so many great songs related about losing to, this. to the police. Yeah, that is what happens. Luke uh, gets arrested for vandalism. I guess it is destruction of public property and public drunkenness, and then uh, ends up on the the work camp. Yeah, prison farm. Yeah. It yeah. was. Do those things still exist? I don't know. Um, it's an interesting. I think they must. I mean, I remember that they there was a famous documentary about Angola, the prison farm that HBO did maybe twenty years ago. But uh, we don't know. That's a good question, Dave. I, I don't know, and I'm not very good at looking up things like that. So yeah, listen. I mean that's that's uh, <laughs> you could Google do prison farms. <laughs> I'm typing that as we. There speak. we go. Yeah, I mean it just it's this is set. I guess I hadn't realized as I was watching this that I guess. You know, it's from 1967, but it's set in the early 50s. 50s. Yeah, which but, wasn't clear to me. But yeah, so I watched uh, Brubaker after this, right? Because that is the director, Stuart Rosenberg, made in 1980 with Robert Redford as a prison warden reformer. And it also takes place on a farm. And I think that takes place uh, maybe not as re- uh, recent as 1980, but it's probably somewhere in the 70s, I'd say. So um, I would, I mean, I know they were there through the nineties and once Dave tells us, we'll know if prison farms still exist or what we could do is just go outside and, uh, lop the heads off of parking meters <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and see, see what where happens. we end up. Right. 
Bill. I'm getting a lot of mixed answers here. Yeah, right? it's, it seems likely that there's maybe not a definitive source well, for that. Well, let's just move on with the episode the yes then, no. shall we, Josh? So Cool Hand Luke, however, was, uh, <laughs> regardless of the status of prison farms, Cool Hand Luke was a popular film and generally acclaimed. I mean, Paul Newman was such a massive star at this point. And so uh, I think there was high expectations uh, for whatever he was doing. And this was like another step on the right. way to him becoming an even bigger star, even bigger superstar. So a lot of these reviews kind of focused on that idea. Uh, Roger Ebert, after going through uh, the recent history of Newman's other films and sort of the way that he portrays movie heroes, uh, Ebert said, the movie hero used to be an inspiration, but recently he has become a substitute. We no longer want to be heroes ourselves but we want to know that heroes are on the job in case we ever need one. This has resulted in an interesting flip-flop of stereotypes. Used to be the anti-hero was a bad guy we secretly liked. Then, with Marlon Brando, we got a bad guy we didn't like. And now, in Cool Hand Luke, we get a good guy who becomes a bad guy because he doesn't like us. Luke is the first Paul Newman character to understand himself well enough to tell us to shove off. He's through risking his neck to make us happy. I'm not sure if that's right. I, I I got a little lost in his assessment there. Um. Okay. So, do you think he's a good guy or a bad guy? First off, I mean, I don't think that he's a bad guy. I think if he's, I mean, part of the point of this movie, I think, is that everything he does, while illegal, is essentially harmless. Right. And he was a war hero, and he just kind of fell through the cracks, right? But I do think that the character and characterization of Luke by Paul Newman is like the selling point on the movie. Although the whole movie is good to me, obviously I picked it. It would be weird if I picked something I didn't like at all. Although I have been known to undercut my own picks before Josh. <laughs> yes, but so. this one you like. So that's <laughs> no, I good. really do like this movie a lot. And, yeah. and um, but I think Josh, what it speaks more of is again, 1967 seminal year, pivotal year. We're starting to see anti-heroes as the heroes. And this is more about, you know, the man, maybe this is like one of those first movies about the man trying to keep the individual down and the individual really fighting back. I mean, I know we get some of that on like on the waterfront and stuff, but this is um, a modern piece on that from that time. Yeah, I think the the Brando movie that he refers to a lot, Ebert, elsewhere in that review is The Wild One, which I actually have not seen. So, um, but you're right about on the waterfront. Yeah, and I think this is part of the idea here is that this is this shift for Paul Newman into these more anti-establishment roles, maybe, and that he's been this this kind of matinee idol figure. And one, I don't know if it was the Ebert review or one other review that I was looking through compared uh, Paul Newman to uh, Charlton Heston and how they both kind of started out in the same way. And Heston more and more went in this direction of, you know, he's literally playing like, you know, Moses and these yeah. these really... Uh, sort of square, upstanding figures, and Paul Newman has gone in this opposite direction to play these complex everyman figures. And who would you rather watch? And what movies would you rather watch? Right, yeah. I was Not that Charlton Heston hasn't been in some good movies yeah. or given good performances, but yes, Newman, I think, is a far more interesting actor. Yeah, I agree. But in, in Charlton Heston's defense, as I said on our Slapshot episode, I think Paul Newman is like the greatest American actor. I think in, in that top line, you have like maybe five. And he's he's there. He's in the top the top line for me. I mean, he's certainly I I wouldn't necessarily disagree with you there. And better than Charlton Heston. Uh, you on damn dirty ape. See, that is actually a great Charlton Heston performance and a great movie. I mean, uh, on a complete tangent, not so get... great. His co-opting of that for the NRA. Well, that yes. When when we get to 1968, maybe we'll talk about all of that. Bosley Crowther in the New York Times said that traditional object of sorrow and compassion in American folk song and lore, the chain gang prisoner, is given as strong a presentation as ever he has had on the screen in Cool Hand Luke. Indeed, in my recollection, he has never been as forcefully revealed as a victim, not only of the brutality and sadistic discipline of his captors, but also, and this is most important, of the indirect cruelty that comes from idolization in the eyes of his fellow prisoners and finally of himself. What elevates this brutal picture above the ruck of prison films and into the range of intelligent contemplation of the ironies of life is a sharp script, ruthlessly realistic and plausible staging and directing by a new man, Stuart Rosenberg, 
and splendid acting by Paul Newman and a totally unfaultable cast. A new man directing <laughs> Newman. Yeah, I guess there were references to this being Rosenberg's first film, but it's not. Uh, it kind of is. So I read, I read up the history on it. He was, so he was a TV director, won an Emmy as a TV director. Then he was directing Murder, Inc. That was supposedly his first movie, but there was a director strike. So he left it and then someone else finished directing it. I think they share credit, but this is really like his first piece. His first full film himself. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's the sound of the man working on the chain gang. <laughs> right. And and I guess that is something that 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 goes to like the presence of these kinds of things in our culture, that it is a traditional thing in American culture. So I guess maybe those uh those still exist in some form. I don't know if they would, do they still do road work in, on these farms or they're, uh, we don't know. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think in the lower security ones, they were always picking up like trash at the parks. Right. I yeah. Don't know. I we, guess. I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like all I think, I think back to like orange is the new black, which is about a minimum security women's prison. And they, they, uh, they make lingerie, uh, you know, they, they use sewing machines. Or belt for that. buckles, right? Yeah. So I guess that's maybe did, uh, the, the modern equivalent. Wasn't that what uh, Dignan made in prison when we watched Bottle oh, Rocket? Oh, yeah. Bottle so. Rocket. Dignan, a modern day cool hand loop. <laughs> I just think it's funny that all of those examples like could be completely made up for the movie or the show. But. Right. Yeah. I don't know if that's how realistic <laughs> yeah. that is on Orange is the New Black. Yeah. But um, I mean, some of that is based on a real person's real memoir, but a lot of it is not. So, no. I, yeah, I honestly don't well, know. Well, Josh, I for one am just happy you're not comparing it to a Billie Eilish documentary. But <laughs> let's get back to the script here, Josh, which was a great script uh, written by Don Pierce and Frank Pearson. Right. Yeah. And Don, Don Pierce is based on his novel, based on his experiences. And he had quite a lot of experiences leading up to this. He is a wild man. And we might want to, you want to talk about that now or in the legacy sense? Well, I mean, all of it is really pre this movie. I mean, at at the point that he wrote this novel, then he kind of settled into being a writer and a journalist, but his previous life. Yeah. So he lied at the age of 15 to get into the army, then was in the merchant Marines because they did send him, uh, well, he lied to get into the Merchant Marines, but snuck his way into the army. And his mother wrote a letter saying he's too young to be in the army. So then they sent him to the Merchant Marines. Or Then he went like all over the world and he was in France and Marseille. And he was uh, imprisoned because he was caught counterfeiting, right? <laughs> counterfeiting money. Then he escaped the prison in France, got to the Italian border, didn't have any papers, forged his own papers to get on the ship back to Canada, somehow ended up back in America where you think he would clean up, but no, he just became a burglar and a safe cracker and ended up on a prison farm for two years in Florida. And that was sort of the inspiration for this movie. Um, so he, he, his activities slightly more serious than uh, vandalism of parking meters. Meh. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so he wrote, you know, he had basically sold the story and then the studio teamed him up with Frank Pearson, who some people will remember as the, uh, head of the Motion Picture Academy Awards, right? Uh, oh, was guy? he? Yeah, for years. Like, whenever the Oscars came on, and they're like, give it up for the president of the Academy, Frank Pearson. Ladies and gentlemen, the Oscars are so important, blah, blah, blah. Right, that guy. That um, guy. <laughs> but what's related to him for us, Josh, is on your pick this season, uh, Point Blank, we talked about Cat Ballou, which Lee Marvin won the Oscar for for Best Picture in 1965 and Frank Pearson wrote that. Yeah. So yeah, the, the screenplay and the authenticity of it is definitely a, a key thing here and, and cited by critics, including John Mahoney in the Hollywood reporter who said Stuart Rosenberg with his second completed theatrical film, cool hand Luke makes a powerful bid for a position among the top ranks of directors for the big screen. Well written by Pierce and Pearson and acted by a most talented ensemble of performers Cool Hand Luke succeeds as both a highly humorous and deeply dramatic study of the immolation of the human spirit in captivity and as an allegory. The balance between story and significance is a delicate one, but Rosenberg maintains it overall, despite a few moments of arty camera work and some heavy-handed underlining of the Christ parallel. And he talks a lot in this review about the idea of Luke as a Christ figure, and I that Wikipedia, good old Wikipedia, uh, mentions that a lot too. And other than like one obvious shot where he's splayed out to look like Christ after he eats all the eggs, it didn't seem to me as sort of 
blunt about that. I didn't pick up on that as much, but is that something that you picked up on? Well, no, but I mean, you're that shot is right. And then the, you know, the climax of the movie takes place in a church and he's talking to God. And I think that like probably is some of Newman's best work in this movie. Right. And, you know, I guess like this whole idea of like him becoming like this leader in the prison is kind of Christ and the disciples. But I mean, you know, no, is it like, is it, who's that knocking at my door? No, you know, where it's all very religious overtones, but I do think, yeah, there's some type of religion in there. And um, I kind of like that because, you know, the good guys, right. Who think they're, or who the people who think they're the good guys, the bosses on these farms are incredibly cruel. Right. And I'm sure they think they're really good Christians, you know? So yeah, I think there is uh, some of that in there. Yeah, I guess. I mean, and you could argue, you know, if we're going to get to the ending that Luke sort of sacrifices himself for the sake of his fellow prisoners in some way, uh, even though he really doesn't need to. Yeah, I don't think he did. I just think he just, again, that character is just like, I'm not putting up with any bullshit. And if that means I'm going to die right now, I'm going to die right now. You know, what what would they have done to him if he went back yet again to the camp that they haven't already tried to do to him to break him? Right, right. Yeah, I, I don't know. So yeah, that that was something that I thought was maybe being overstated there by some critics, but certainly something that a lot of people see in this movie. So Jason, I mean, this is your pick. Uh, I assume you saw it before and liked it. When did you first yeah, see this film? Yeah, it must have been college around there, maybe a little after. But I one of the reasons I picked it is because I really liked it back then and I haven't seen it in so long. I haven't seen it since. And, you know, I like I said, like I just don't think you get better than Paul Newman. So when this, when uh, we were looking through 1967, this was a perfect time to revisit it. And now that we're kind of establishing these themes and kind of uh, these rules that are being broken or remade in 1967, I think this really fits in perfectly. Yeah, I, I thought I had remembered you and I watching this together, maybe in our little film club with Tony Macklin, but I'm not sure. Uh, Let Letterbox tells me I saw this in February 2010 the first time. So I don't know. What, what a reversal. Josh remembers us watching a movie together and I forgot. Right. But I, you may not have forgotten. I may be wrong. Yeah. I thought that that was what happened, but I'm not sure. I definitely had seen it, but I don't know if we, if we saw it together or if we talked about it in that, in that group. And did you like it the first time you saw it? I think I liked it fine that time. And I liked it fine this time. You know, it's, it's one of those that's a classic and certainly as you quoted those lines and certain elements of it are really iconic. And I think for me, a lot of times coming to a movie like that, you it's sometimes hard to appreciate things that have been diluted by parodies and repetition and all that kind of stuff. And so I have a greater appreciation the second time a lot of the time. And this one, I felt like I was fairly even. I think this is a good movie, but I don't necessarily have the enthusiasm for it that you have. I, I think, yeah, well, like in that last review, we were like, save for some arty camera work. And I'm like, dude, that camera works great. You know, it's Conrad Hall, right? The yeah. Very legendary, you know, three Oscars uh, cinematographer. And um, it all works. Um, I just like, I mean, to me, it's like, you know, as we talked about with like something like The Station Agent, I'm a big fan of character studies, especially when they do honest you know, looks at these characters. And I think this is a great example of that. Yeah, I think this is something and that that reference to arty camera work might have been in The Hollywood Reporter. And I think this is something we've seen from these sort of establishment critics this year. I remember the same thing coming up in The Graduate, like they have a very low tolerance for any of yeah. mainstream Hollywood filmmaker trying to do anything out of the ordinary. Right. I don't think they necessarily got the intention of those camera moves, especially like, you know, you, right at the beginning, it's either the first or second shot where He's dutching. It's a Dutch angle, a tilted angle on Luke kind of screwing off the parking meter heads. And it's like you're already seeing that something's askew, Josh. That it is. So, Dave, had you ever seen this one? No, I hadn't. I mean, obviously, those like you said, those lines, they just kind of permeate pop culture. But I had never actually seen the movie. But you saw it this time. I did watch it. Yes. All right. Yeah. Good, good job. <laughs> right before it went off on Netflix. Right. Well, yes. it's now uh, HBO you know, Max. on HBO Max as we're recording this if people want to check it out. So uh, anything else on the background here, Jason, you want to mention? I think you covered a lot of it there, Josh, which I appreciate, friend. No, I do my um, best. Yeah. Uh, the only other thing, some fun little uh, 
cameos harry dean stanton who we've talked about here discredited as dean stanton yeah i mean that's more than a cameo he's got a decent yeah size and role. he's singing you know yeah, he's doing this he dennis hopper more has a cameo in this yeah role. i mean both of them yeah. playing kind of you know among the ensemble of the prisoners here um yeah and the, uh, the writer of, don pierce had a cameo as one right of the all members of this chain gang that they are woody some good boys <laughs> We'll come back in a moment and talk about our general thoughts on Cool Hand Luke. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1967, we're talking about Jason's pick, Cool Hand Luke. And Jason, you've said a lot of this, but what was the main reason that you wanted us to talk about this movie? Yeah, I mean, it's Paul Newman. It Now I really, after watching so many movies from this year, see how it fits into that. And I just liked, um, I thought the, the, the setting, the character, and the direction all really worked for me in this one. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like I said, I feel like I can appreciate the sort of importance the influence of it and, and what it's kind of trying to do and and newman is great but a lot of this movie especially the first like sort of two-thirds until it gets into the more i don't know maybe the slightly heavier material with with luke when he's escaping more and more and he's really fighting the system it, it just felt kind of shapeless to me i mean and maybe that's part of the fact that it's based on this novel that's inspired by this guy's real experiences. And I'm sure a lot of being in one of these prison camps is just doing whatever from day to day. But I, I don't know. I felt like a lot of that was just, was a little dull to me. Well, I think you're shapeless, you bag of yogurt. Thank you. <laughs> um, I'm going to disagree. <laughs> just a thank you. Josh, for those of you who don't know, was in a film called Heckler with uh, Jamie Kennedy and Jamie Kennedy just tried to rip him and you used a lot of hacky things. He called you like a virgin and stuff like that. And you just no sold every bit of it. And it was wonderful. Cause you're like, no, I'm not, I'm not a virgin. Uh, I will not answer that question. So you just, uh, you just railed me with some of your classic no selling. Um, thank you again. I guess. <laughs> Josh, I disagree with you. I don't think it was shapeless. Okay. Yeah. Um, because so he goes to jail. Obviously, we start to see that stuff of, uh, you know, do this. You're in the, uh, you know, what is it called? The the box. The box, right? Do this. You're in the box. Do that. You're in the box, which I like, uh, you know, the if we're going to talk about spoofs, the uh, Simpsons one with yeah. the substitute. Oh, yeah. That's a paddling. Complain about a paddling. That's a paddling, you know? <laughs> yeah, that was like, the, again, I feel like that's so many of these things. Like, as I was watching that scene again this time, I thought, oh, it's the paddling scene from the Simpsons. Yeah, so. Right. But. First, you're learning the rules. Then he's kind of fitting in. Then there's that early, you know, confrontation with him and Dragline where they have the fight and like Dragline totally is physically. I mean, George Kennedy looks like a freaking linebacker in this thing. He's a oh, big yeah. boy, right? George Kennedy just got bigger and bigger as yeah. uh, time went on. I mean, he's a he's an intimidating presence and he just beats the crap out of Luke, but gains Luke gains the respect by never quitting, right? And he kind of gains the respect of the bosses and the people around him. And then he kind of is able to become this charismatic figure, right? This leader. And he is, he doesn't really do anything wrong. He just kind of does his own thing and people follow and he's lifted the whole spirit of the camp in these scenes where you're seeing how they work. Right. Um, and just how they live day to day. And then I think that's important because it builds up to the time where uh, Luke finds out his mother dies and Luke, who's been pretty much a model prisoner at this point, instead of letting him go to the funeral, they put him in the box because they're like, oh, well, prisoners like to run when they go to funerals. So we're going to put you in the box. So he sees like that nothing matters. Right. They're going to treat everyone like they're less than human, no matter what. And that's when that shift changes, that tone changes. And now he's always running and escaping. And each time he gets brought back, it's just kind of heartbreaking because you're rooting for him so hard. And those escape sequences are fun to watch just how he kind of does it. So that's why I think that first part is so important because it makes the emotional impact of the rest of it resonate stronger for me. Right. Yeah. I mean, that makes, that makes sense. And I think that that moment where they, not only do they not let him go to his mom's funeral, but they punish him not for anything. He hasn't done anything. And in fact, he's grieving his mother and they not only say, Hey, you can't go to the funeral. 
but they put him in the box, which yeah. is a, a very unpleasant experience. It's their version of solitary, right? It's just this horrible, dark, dank, tiny space that you probably have to stand up more than sit down just because it's so cramped. And you know it's got to just be horribly, horribly hot in there. We know this is a Florida chain gang. There's no room, no windows. It's just this dark, horrible space. So it's like your mother died. You can go spend four days in the box or whatnot. Like, so that, I mean, that that's that's the real kind of uh, screw that turns this thing. Right, right. I will say the, the, the thing I liked most in this movie, even more so than those escape attempts and all that, the scene between Luke and his mother when she comes to visit him and she's sitting in the uh, in the back of this pickup truck, she's obviously sick and she's got to recline and she's coughing and they they kind of talk about but also around his upbringing. I thought that was really affecting. And I think is it Joe Van Fleet is yeah. the name of the actress. She was really good in that scene. And And one of the other frustrating things for me about this movie is that I never felt like I understood Luke as a person like any of his motivations or anything. And that was the one scene where I felt like we delved into his personality and his character and, you know, what, how he was brought up and all that kind of stuff. And, and Newman acts the hell out of that scene too. And I felt like I would have liked more of that kind of thing in this movie to understand him a little better. I think that's a fair criticism. I'm not against that. Joe Van Fleet crushes that scene, right? She, uh, won a Tony in 1954 and an Oscar in 1955. So she's, she did all right for herself. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, what you're saying is this idea of like, she kind of had to raise him alone or with stepdads who might not have cared for him. But what I got out of that scene is the idea of how Luke and and they kind of touch on it, right? He's this war hero, but he never really fit in. And it's like, where's his place in society? Right. And, you know, the mom saying like she did her best and he's like, yeah, I know you did. It's just that I don't know. I don't know. This is uh, I don't have that blood running through my veins like everyone else. I mean, in a way, Josh, like whatever. I've said it a hundred times on the show. I'm a huge Springsteen fan. This character could be a character off the Nebraska album. Right. So maybe that's one of the things that resonates for me. But I also think you get that when I'm at the end of the movie, when he does that, you know, speech to God, that monologue of like, you know, it seems like, you know, the cards are often stacked against me and I can't win and all this. So I think you do get a little more of it there, but I, um, I don't mind that. I know what you're saying. I think it's a fair criticism, but there are so many of these like soldiers who came back from war who couldn't figure out where they fit into society. That's true. I mean, and that's a common thing. We've seen a lot of movies about that kind of stuff. And I think for me, part of the problem, and this is just me, is that I did not until literally like going and looking on Wikipedia for doing research, I did not know that this movie was supposed to take place in the 50s. And I assumed it was 1967. And I was trying to think of what war he was a veteran of and how he would have been treated as a veteran. And, you know, he could have been a Vietnam veteran yeah. at that time or a Korean War veteran, but obviously not. He's meant to be a World War II veteran. And the way that World War II veterans were treated is very different from the way that that Korean War or Vietnam War veterans were treated. So I think I just didn't have a handle on what were his experiences and, you know, sort of what led him to this point. And part of that was just me not understanding the time frame of the movie. Yeah, no, that's that's true. I didn't get that either. Right. So if you're looking at World War Two, right, you're they, they are more revered and respected. But there's no mental health coming back of like because, you know, ooh, you killed a lot of people. And it's like, yeah, 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 you know, and it's like you could tell he's got that inner turmoil, but he's never been able to work it out. Right. Korea. He still could have been a Korean War veteran in the fifth. This takes place in the fifties. Yeah, I guess right? depending on when in the fifties. True. Yeah, yeah. So, and I think that still, you know, got the the those veterans got respect. Yeah, that's know. sort of like the forgotten that right. they didn't get disrespected, but it's like people didn't even they, pay attention. They weren't heroes, right? right? Right. And then Vietnam, you know, there was this whole turning against uh, the veterans, which is not their fault. There, it's the people. They really want to turn against the people who sent the people over to Vietnam, but they, yeah, you know, they were the forgotten soldiers or the disrespected soldiers. So to me, it would work in that time period as a Vietnam uh, veteran. I think you might have to tweak a few things, but you're, you're right. I think it fits most as a World War II veteran. And I mean, I think, again, that's what it's supposed to be. That's what Don Pierce was himself, who wrote this book and it based on his experiences, he fought in World War II. So 
I don't know. That was that was sort of part of the. I think, and I think maybe that goes to something else. Just that I felt like a lot of this movie was just too vague for me. I, I, I okay, that's okay. I'm with it. I didn't mind it. I was so enthralled with the characters and uh, the setting. And one thing I really liked, and like I said, I watched Brubaker after this. I, I love the way Stuart Rosenberg is able to enhance the environment around him by background action. Like we talked about Harry Dean Stanton playing those songs. And obviously, you know, Cool Hand Luke is going to be the focus of most of these scenes, but he either cuts away or comes into these scenes with like just little snippets of some of the other prisoners talking. And I think he really is able to elevate what the environment is that way. Yeah, it definitely felt like a real lived in environment. And I was impressed too, reading about this, that they built that camp from scratch. That wasn't a real prison camp that they shot at. Um, and it looks very, you know, it looks like somebody that's been there for a while and has seen a lot of these guys come in and out of it and is just sort of a real inhabited place. So I did, I did appreciate that about it. I think uh, the sense of place and the setting is, is effective in this film. And the music added to that as well. Yeah, the music, whether it's those songs uh, or just the score, the Oscar-nominated score. And I think, yeah, all of those background, you know, mentioned here, Harry Dean Stanton and Dennis Hopper, but all of these guys, even though on the one hand, the the sort of background prisoners are kind of interchangeable and they don't necessarily have distinctive personalities, but that's probably what it would feel like for a lot of, you know, being in one of these places is just this mass of dudes um, who are there. And we don't really learn much about why they're there, what they've been charged with or convicted of, except in the early scene where the new prisoners, Luke and a few others are brought in and they mention their charges. But otherwise, we don't really know. And it doesn't really matter to these people. So Josh, Luke on that second escape where he gets away for days or a month or whatever, and you don't ever see him recaptured. You just cut to a scene after he hasn't been recaptured. And then you cut to a scene back at the prison camp and they're like dragging him in. I thought that was an incredibly effective way to bring him back. And like my heart dropped for him at that point in time because you're rooting for him. Yeah, I think so. And I think the way that they do that where they don't really leave the prison or not very far. I mean, we only follow Luke, uh, you know, a mile or two away from the prison as he's running away. And, and like you said, in that one instance where he does get actually far away and he talks about how he, he got jobs and he really... Uh, succeeded in in sort of settling outside the prison for a little while. We don't see any of that because it's really just about the prison as this sort of insular world. Yeah, Dave, thoughts? I I think it's hard to separate just how watchable Newman and also Kennedy for that you know are both just so damn watchable. And the movie itself though didn't really do that much for me. It was more so those performances and just watching those two be big and be them, you know? <laughs> um, well, I mean, we, we got to talk more about George Kennedy, I think, because he won that Oscar. And I mean, in a lot of ways, he's as important a character in this movie as Luke, because he has this arc too, where, like you said, he's sort of the big man on the prison. He's the one who's everyone's looking up to and who, who's kind of lords over everyone. And Luke comes in and at first there's that challenge with the boxing match. And then he becomes almost this like puppy dog to Luke to, you know, look up to him and want him to succeed and kind of live vicariously through him. And he gets uh, eventually has to be sort of disillusioned of that by the end of the movie. So there's a big arc there for him as a character. A couple of things. One, I don't even think he's disillusioned. Remember, it's Luke who tells Dragline that they have to separate and go their own separate ways. So he's just thrust into the reality of it. But he does try to, you know, negotiate on Luke's behalf, which, you know, he was probably hoping against hope or believing in something that wasn't going to happen anyway, you know, but yeah, even afterwards, he is the one, you know, that spoiler alert, Luke gets shot, dies at the end, right? Um, he is the one who's, you know, spreading the quote unquote gospel of Luke there, right? You know, oh, he was a good boy. That smile Luke had, he was smiling to the end, you know, that type of stuff. And uh, yeah, he does come off as this kind of larger than life character, which is interesting because like you're saying, he's larger than life, but he's looking at someone who's larger than him in that life, right? Yeah. Um, so that that is an interesting point, Josh. I just, and I know he won this Oscar and I don't remember being, I, having a, any particular response to him the first time, but 
I found him a little annoying in this one. I kept thinking he sounded like an Adam Sandler character. Nah, you don't know anyone from the Deep South, Josh. <laughs> he beat uh, the people he beat. John Cassavetes, Dirty Dozen, Gene Hackman. What's he ever done? Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, Cecil Calloway. Uh, guess who's coming to dinner and Michael J. Pollard, Bonnie and Clyde. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen uh, Bonnie and Clyde in a in a long time to recall those specifics, but um, I, you know, Gene Hackman is Gene Hackman. I kind yeah, of just course. am inclined to say he should have won that. Well, I mean, but this is like that type of meaty, you know, show me the money performance, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's not surprising that he won that Oscar. And like I said, I don't remember thinking one way or the other about it, but this time, as soon as he opened his mouth, I was like, this sounds like Cajun man or something. I mean, but there are people from the deep South who speak like that. There are, there are. And, 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 and certainly as I was just saying, I mean, there's some depth to his character over the course of the movie, but it just didn't entirely work for me this time. Not that it was bad, but it just, I wasn't immersed in it as much as I would have wanted to, as opposed to Newman, who I think is really such a naturalistic actor. And even when I felt like I didn't quite understand Luke as a character, I felt the realism of it. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the alternative casting here. Oh, yes. Originally, and this would have been, I mean, the person I'm going to mention is another one of the great actors. I can't see him in this role, but I'm sure he could have pulled it off because he's that good. But it was originally developed with Jack Levin's production company. As Luke? Yeah. And I just, you just don't see that in your head, right? Yeah, but, I don't know. Yeah. And then Telly Savalas, who's kind of a little grittier, I think, you know. Cool that. Jack. Yeah. And then the other, the only other thing I read was that uh, besides Joe Van Fleet, they wanted uh, Betty Davis, who's great. You know. Yeah, I love Betty Davis. And I would have been, I mean, I would have, be happy to see her in anything. I think I've seen nearly everything she's ever been in. Um, but Joe Van Fleet is, is fantastic in that I scene, think so. certainly. I think so. And I think Struther Martin as the warden is quite good in this film as well. He is. And a lot of Struther Martin's performance is, I mean, he has that iconic speech that is probably the most famous thing from this movie. So you think of that, but a lot of his performance is just sitting in that rocking chair, kind of smugly looking over his domain. And he really conveys the self-satisfaction that that character has of being a boss a prison boss yeah right? yeah and it's like he's a prison boss but he's got he's got guys with guns he's got hound dogs he's got all these you know things puts them in chains um the only really famous thing we didn't talk about is the sequence which kind of adds to the lore of luke which is the uh eating 50 hard-boiled eggs which is a really fun sequence shows the relationship between him and dragline and how he kind of becomes even more of a hero to these guys. And I wanted to ask you, Jason, as a food writer, is eating 50 hard-boiled eggs in an hour something that competitive eaters could do very easily? Or is it uh, really as big an accomplishment as it appears I, in this movie? I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to, maybe I'll have to talk about that on my other podcast, Food and Loathing. Check it out wherever you get your podcast. I can't see anyone eating 50 hard-boiled eggs. Like, because it's not like... You're having a three egg omelet and you're just downing it. You have to eat each egg individually. That sounds extremely difficult to me. I mean, yeah, I'm sure it is extremely difficult for the average person, but I just, mm. these competitive eaters just, it's amazing how much they can eat. And I feel like 50 hard boiled eggs is something that, uh, what is that guy's name? Joey Chestnut or one <laughs> yeah. of those guys could do it in like four minutes. Maybe. I don't know if he could, but I wouldn't want to be around him about two hours later. Well, or Luke, I was, I couldn't remember if they showed any of the aftermath of that and they didn't. No, no, they did not. That would have been quite, uh, quite unpleasant. Do you want to rate this thing, Josh, out of uh, five hard boiled eggs? Oh yeah. That's Very a much good. more manageable number of hard boiled eggs. Yeah. So, I eat that many. You would eat that many. Oh huh? yeah. For All right. Sure. Challenge is here next <laughs> <laughs> Dave, over the course of this podcast, eat yeah. five hard-boiled eggs. I, it still gets four for me. This is a four four egg movie, hard-boiled <laughs> hard or otherwise. I think I am not disagreeing with most of your criticisms, and even me. Sometimes I'm like, okay, well, we could advance some story here, but I'm just like, whereas Dave was saying, like, how do you separate just watching these performances from whatever else is going on? Like, to me, that that's the movie. So four, four hard boiled eggs for me. All right. And I don't, I mean, I'm going to, I give this a three hard boiled eggs out of five and I don't think it's bad at all. I think there was a lot of it that I, again, sort of appreciated, but just didn't connect with for whatever reason, but it's a good movie. It was an easy watch. Even when it gets serious, it, it, it fairly flew by, even though it's over two hours, but it just kind of left me a little cold at the end, but overall 
Um, and that's not how you want your hard boiled eggs to be, right? You don't want no, you can eat them cold. That's the point, is like kids take them for lunch and stuff. Oh, okay. This is we've got some cold ones in the fridge right now. I I I have never eaten a hard boiled egg, so (laughs) clearly my expertise is yeah, that's that's not (laughs) three for me, Dave. What do you want to rate this? I'm also going with three. Fair enough. Meh. (laughs) (laughs) We'll come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of Cool Hand Luke. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1967, we've been talking about Jason's pick, Cool Hand Luke. And as far as the legacy goes, I mean, we we did our episode on Slapshot uh, a couple seasons ago and talked a lot about Paul Newman and his career. And I mean, this is 10 years earlier than Slapshot, but still at this point, he was still this huge star and went on to do so many more amazing things. Right. And Slapshot was kind of a departure from all of those things. Uh, just getting back to doing something fun and yelling, hey, Harnahan, your wife sucks pussy. <laughs> so you said you weren't going to do a Paul Newman impression. And then it uh, then it showed up to do it. Speaking of uh, Slapshot, Struther Martin's also in there. Oh, yeah. And uh, Newman, I mean, you know, we could name a million movies. He won his Oscar for The Color of Money, you know, related to another uh, person we've talked about, uh, Mr. Martin Scorsese. Yeah, which is a sequel from a movie he did in the 60s, The Hustler. Yeah. I haven't seen The Color of Money. I assume as a Scorsese fan you have. Yes, I have. It's good. I think, you know, it would be good to watch those back to back because I've never seen The Hustler. Which is him and Gleason? Is that right? Jackie yeah, Gleason? I have seen The Hustler, and The Hustler is really good. Yeah, Jackie Gleason, where, and I think that was the thing. The Hustler is Jackie Gleason is is sort of the grizzled old time figure who's yeah. mentoring Paul Newman, and then it's reversed in The Color of Money as he mentors Tom. I Cruise. love that. That's great. That's like a Richard Linklater stuff, like something he would think of, and he's like, okay, we'll make this segment now, and then twenty four years from now, we'll make the next thing. <laughs> right. I don't think they had planned it at the time, and it's not. I don't forget who directed that. Is they. Uh, Robert Rawson, maybe I forget, but it's certainly not Martin Scorsese yeah. who directed The Hustler. Dave, who directed The Hustler? Oh yeah, and and were they ever in a prison gang? Yeah, <laughs> but uh, you know, while Dave looks that up, we could talk about Stuart Rosenberg, who is a pretty good director. There, Josh. Uh, Josh is right. Robert Rawson. Oh, all right. Look at you, Look at you <laughs> making moves. He directed the Amityville Horror. Yeah, that's the only other one of his films I've seen. It is uh, not 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 so good, but certainly uh, influential. Yeah, I watched Brubaker, and uh, I really want to see The Drowning Pool. But he worked a lot with Paul Newman. They worked a lot together. They did. Yeah, they made three more movies together: W U S A, Pocket Money, and The Drowning Pool that you just mentioned. And Pocket Money sounds fascinating, starring. Paul Newman and Lee Marvin, who we've just talked about, directed by Stuart Rosenberg, written by Terrence Malick. There's going to be a lot of this in that movie, I'll tell you why. <laughs> so I'd be curious to see that one, actually. Um, yeah, and his he worked all the way until 1991, his final film called My Heroes Have Always Been Cowboys. And then he retired and taught at AFI in, until I think uh, he died in 2007 or 2008. So mm. mentoring filmmakers of the next generation. Including Darren Aronofsky. Yeah, uh, who never worked with Paul Newman. And uh, the dude who did, uh, is it Todd Fields? Or is- yeah, Todd Field, I think you're right, yeah. who made, uh, was it uh, In the Bedroom and yeah. Little Children? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, some, some pretty uh, serious directors who learned there from Stuart Rosenberg. Who maybe doesn't get, I mean, he's he's got this kind of journeyman career, but as you're saying, you know, he he made some pretty uh impressive films. Yeah, what is uh question seven? That that's one that comes up a lot in his uh filmography. It's from like the early 60s. Right? That was another one that was before Cool Hand Luke, so I'm not sure. That's what I don't understand either, because he that movie won the National Board Review Film of the Year in 1961, and he got a DGA nomination for it. But like you're saying, they all say this was his feature debut. So that that's a little confusing to me. Yeah, I don't know. The Hollywood Reporter references this as his second film. So I don't know if maybe like that other movie that you mentioned that you mentioned that someone else completed, maybe he's credited, but he didn't finish it. I know actually there's a film he in 1986, and I forget what the title of it was, some one of these 80s action type movies that were big at the time that he directed and then was credited as Alan Smithy. So, right, right. you know, maybe had some some conflicts with producers over his career. Right. Oh, well, you could see that. Yeah. But I mean, and Josh, we've done 84. But one movie we didn't do was The Pope of Greenwich Village, which is a popular 
an interesting uh i i've still never seen it but i know it should be an interesting movie that he did yeah so again maybe someone who uh you know deserves a, a higher place among directors than he has i think so uh george kennedy i feel like this was maybe the height of his career in terms of acclaim but i mean an incredibly prolific character actor and maybe part of why i thought of him in a comedic way is because the thing that I know him most for, and I'm sure Dave does too, is being in the Naked yeah. Gun movies. Oh, we yeah. all do, which is spoofing his own character from the airport movies. Yep. Right, yep. right. So, but yeah, I mean, but he worked, he worked constantly. Yes, yes, he did. I mean, he did a lot of TV and a lot of character roles and, and certainly uh, was very busy throughout his career. But and I think by the time he got to the Naked Gun, he wasn't like, oh, you know, up and coming Oscar winning actor. He was just this kind of veteran. Hey, you've seen that guy's face in a million things. Yeah. Um, and Josh, we mentioned that Paul Newman was nominated for best actor in this. We talked about this on the graduate episode. It was him and Hoffman and Beatty and Spencer Tracy. And they all lost to Rod Steiger and like the greatest five pack of actors possible at the time, I guess. Yeah, that is that is quite a, uh, a lineup there. And I think, you know, for me, at least, I have to mention the what we've got here is a failure to communicate speech, which I heard dozens, if not hundreds of times in the song Civil War by Guns N' Roses before ever seeing this movie. And I would say that's a top three Guns N' Roses song for me. I love that song. song. And you and I have seen it live a few times together. Yes, yes, we have on the the reunion uh, shows that Guns N' Roses have been doing. And yeah, I love Guns N' Roses. And I think weirdly, I don't know why when I was a kid and I listened to that song so many times and in the liner notes of the album, it says, you know, sampled from Cool Hand Luke. And it was like this mythical thing to me. And I don't know why I never just saw the movie. But in the Guns N' Roses song, is it isn't it what we have here? I don't color? think so. It's you just, know it's, what? I thought that too. Or maybe that's just our brain. Yeah, yeah. no, One it's definitely things. not. I mean, oh it's God, taken yeah, directly yeah. from the movie. Yeah. So. And yeah, the other thing is I remember as a kid when I first heard that and I didn't know what it was, I thought it was a woman saying it because he has sort of the uh, higher pitch voice, yeah. Strother Martin. Yeah. So I don't know. I can never disassociate that. Even like w- watching it this time, as soon as he started speaking it, it sounded to me like it didn't you come from it, the movie. The whistles coming. Well, out. right. Or just that it was like something else, like somebody inserted a Guns N' Roses song into this movie. Why would you do that? But hey, listen to that song if you, because it's not the most famous. It's a famous song, but not the most famous Guns N' Roses song. But I love seeing that song live too. That's a really good one. Um, Josh, if we want to talk about some more of that kind of permeation through pop culture, there was a. West End play in 2011 uh, in London of Cool Hand Luke that did not do well. Although one that we didn't mention, which is a super fun movie that just lifts lines completely from it, is The Sandlot. I've never seen The Sandlot. Dave, Sandlot? Oh, yeah, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, in Cool Hand Luke, there's a famous scene of the very uh, curvy young woman washing the car and drag, what would I do to her and this and that, right? And you know, uh, one of the prisoners says, oh, she doesn't know what she's doing. You go, oh, boy, she knows exactly what she's doing. Right. And in the sandlot where the boys are looking at the, the object of their affection, a teenage girl putting on suntan lotion, they use those exact lines there. I don't know, what is that trying to say about those characters? And I was like comparing those characters to uh prisoners on a chain gang or is it just trying to say like hey this is a pop culture reference i I, think it's a pop culture reference but if some of those kids ended up in jail like you know i wouldn't have been surprised yeah again i i'm not familiar with it i just you know as i said before i just kept thinking of the simpsons scene with the that's a paddling yeah Yeah. that's a great scene yeah josh did you know frank pearson wrote one of my all-time favorite movies and won an oscar for it which one was dog day afternoon oh yeah yeah so lots of frank pearson discussion and i more than i would have expected to talk about him well we're we're full of surprises here on awesome i guess we are well because i think because you know don pierce is the main figure in the writing of this and pearson i think came in to just you know, help him with structure it. Right. Cause he'd never written a screenplay before. But so. Don Pierce is just awesome. Everything <laughs> we read about him. Yes. So. Yeah. That was, I, I was thinking of him cause we, when we talked about oh now, and I can't remember the name, but the guy who wrote the graduate novel, who was another one where I never heard of him. Uh, is it uh, Charles Willis? Um, and looked him up and is like, what kind of crazy life did he have? And I think that was right. sort of the same uh, reaction I had to, to reading about Don Pierce. 
Just uh, one other thing on that that failure to communicate line was was number eleven on the AFI's list of the one hundred uh, best movie quotes. So quite quite high up there. Ooh. Okay. I don't know what that. Who who are you mocking there? Is it me? Is it the AFI? I think the list. Lists. <laughs> Jason yeah. scoffs at lists. Uh, well, do you want to add anything else about the legacy? Yes, here? Josh. I want to connect a piece right here. Mm, a puzzle, puzzle piece? piece. Are you going to piece those together? Piecing something together. Uh, the next film, I think it was the next film that Stuart Rosenberg made, was with Jack Lemmon in 1969 called The April Fools. And it was the English speaking debut of actress Catherine Deneuve. Oh, well, mm-hmm. that will lead us into something. So that is Cool Hand Luke, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. Uh, check us out on social media. You can. We're all over at awesomemovieyear.com. Solid, workable website. Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. And uh, I'm Jason Harris Comedy on Facebook and Instagram. Jay Harris Comedy on Twitter. Go for Jason.com. Throw it in the chain gang. Throw it in the box. Whatever you need to do. Hey, check out Food and Loathing. We appreciate everyone listening to both of uh, these podcasts and uh, give us some feedback there, Josh. Yeah. Are you going to eat 50 hard-boiled eggs on Food and Loathing? I would not do well with 50 (laughs) hard-boiled eggs. I don't like hard-boiled eggs. I like eggs. I eat eggs almost every morning, but not hard-boiled. All right. Check me out at joshbellhateseverything.com and uh, at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook and at Signalbleed on Twitter. And listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And then getting back to Catherine Deneuve, what is our next episode, Jason? Josh, they didn't have Sundance back in the 60s, but they had a festival called Venice. It's also a city in Italy. We're going with the Venice Film Festival winner for Best Picture of that year, 1967. It is Belle de Jour, starring Catherine Deneuve. Yes. <laughs> so tune in next time for Belle de Jour. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.